So the title of this morning's message is Excel. And Excel means this, we are going to go beyond whatever we thought we could have done. See, a lot of us, we set goals out there and we think that's the farthest reaching thing in our life. And it's like, if I just achieve this, I will be so happy. But you know, every great player that's ever played a sporting event, what do they have? They got a coach. They got a coach that'll stand there and tell them, you think you can go this far, but I think you can go that far. So you're not going as far as you think you can. You're going as far as I tell you you're going to go. See, I'm not your coach. Jesus is your coach. The Bible says God will do in you, to you, through you, for you, abundantly, above, and beyond anything you could ever ask, think, or imagine. He's going beyond your scope. He's going beyond what you thought you could do. He's going to bring you to a place where you're going to be involved with this crazy steps of faith. I want you to realize that Excel means we are going to go as a church farther than we ever thought we could go. We're going to push the limits. We're going to do everything that God calls us to do. And our response is going to be, yes, Lord. Everybody say, yes, Lord, this morning. I want that to get into your head this morning. So one more time, say, yes, Lord. Lord. See, until we get this in our mindset, we're never going to respond properly to. And until we respond properly to, we're never going to do abundantly above and beyond anything God ever said we could do. So here's what I need you to remember. As we do and go farther this year than we've ever gone, it's going to start with you going farther than you've ever gone today. All right. It's going to call you to go farther than you've ever gone in your life today. See, the problem is we set New Year's resolutions and we think, oh, I got a whole year to accomplish it. No, you don't have a whole year to accomplish it. You got to accomplish your New Year's resolution every single day for a year. You don't have a year to accomplish it problem is you get to the end of the year and you don't accomplish it because you didn't accomplish it the first day so you're not going to accomplish it the last day and until you begin to accomplish it every day of your life you're never going to accomplish all that God's called you to do so first Corinthians 14 12 says this so you with yourselves since you are eager for manifestations of the spirit I am eager in my life for the spirit of God to show up and not the way I known him last year man last year was good 2013 was great shine brighter shine farther yeah it was awesome the spirit of God shown up that's nothing compared to what I want him to do in 2014 amen so I need you to be eager for the spirit of God to have manifestations in your life for him to show up in your life like never before for him to talk to you like he's never talked to you before for him to ask you to do things he's never asked you to do before but manifestations of the spirit of God need to show up in your life amen and so as we're believing that this is how that begins to happen it says since you are eager for manifestations of the spirit strive to excel everybody say excel in building up the church For the manifestations of the Spirit to show up, we need to strive at excelling and building up the church. We need to strive to excel, which means going beyond whatever we thought we were going to do, going farther beyond that point, and building up the church. And so as we begin to build up the church, we're going to jump right into the middle of the Sermon on the Mount. And I'm going to give you a verse of Scripture that many of you have read, and if you've read the Sermon on the Mount the past two weeks like we as a church are doing, you've read this verse, but maybe it didn't click in your head. Because when I read this verse, God, this is talking about excelling. Matthew 5, 48 says, Therefore you shall be perfect, just as your heavenly Father is perfect. I read that, and I said, God, no way. Now, now listen. This is Jesus talking, so you know it's right. I mean, this isn't anybody else. And Jesus says, you be perfect, 
Do you remember the Remember the Titans clip that we showed on Vision Sunday? And Denzel Washington, one of the best lines in my favorite lines of the whole movie, says, we will be perfect in every aspect of the game. And then he goes on to tell what they're going to be perfect at. Jesus is doing the same thing. He's got all his people up there. He's in the Sermon on the Mount. He's got thousands of people around him. He says, you'll be perfect. I guarantee you all the people are sitting here thinking, what? Perfect, that's why we're believing for a Savior. Perfect, that's why we're believing for a Messiah. Perfect, what's this dude talking about perfect? And we get the same mentality in the church. Many of us, as soon as I say the term perfect, you get irritated. The first thing that comes into your mind is one word, impossible. Or another word, unattainable. And when I say the word perfect, you're thinking, pastor, that's impossible. Then why did Jesus say it if it was impossible? And why did Jesus tell the people to do it if it's impossible? The issue with being perfect is this. Being perfect is not the definition you're thinking of as perfect. Everybody say? The thing is, perfect is maybe the reason it's been unattainable and impossible for you. Perfect, the reason you hear that term and the emotions on the inside of you get stirred up and even get a little bit anger stirred up in you because you've tried to be perfect and you failed before. Maybe in this process, your definition of perfect wasn't God's definition of perfect. Maybe in this process, your definition of perfect isn't what God was meaning, but what you were thinking. Maybe your definition of perfect is imperfect. The definition of perfect is this, Christ-like. Perfect equals Christ-like. The problem is, many of us in our definition of perfect, perfect is a bunch of do's and don'ts that causes every Christian to quit. If I am a Christian, then I have to do this and do this and I can't do this and I can't do this anymore. And if I do this certain number of do's and if I don't do this certain number of don'ts, then pastor, I'll be perfect. That's an imperfect definition of perfect. <laughs> and in the problem with that, as we live in Jesus Christ, as our sa- literally our saving grace, have brought ourselves back under bondage of the do's and the don'ts of the law, Rather than just saying perfect is being Christ-like. Perfect is watching Christ and saying this. See, perfect isn't hard. It's simply this. Perfect isn't hard. It's when Jesus says, hey, I need you to do something. You say, perfect isn't hard. It's when you read the Sermon on the Mount so many times, you see somebody in need and you say, perfect isn't hard. It's when you see somebody who needs a drink of water and it's a steaming hot day and you say, see, perfect isn't hard. It's perfect. It's just simply saying, That is what perfect amounts to. That is what perfect brings us to. The definition of perfect, be ye perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect, is just simply being this, Christ-like. Now listen to who Jesus is talking to in the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus is talking in the Sermon on the Mount. The first people he's talking to is a bunch of Israelite people, okay? The Jewish people. That's who he's talking to in the Sermon on the Mount. The second group of people he's talking to in the Sermon on the Mount is the Pharisee people, the people who were the keepers of the law, who were the goody two-shoes of the goody two-shoes, I guess you could say. They never messed up, according to them, but they had an imperfect definition of perfect. So according to them, they never messed up, and if they did mess up, they would change the law to fit them, so they would stay perfect. You automatically know that if you got to change it, it's not perfect. And so Jesus comes along, and the first people he's speaking to is the nation of Israel, and all these people who know their failures because they're not the Pharisees said, y'all need to be perfect. The second group of people is the Pharisees saying, y'all need to be perfect. Now they're mad, and the Israelites are mad because Jesus is telling a bunch of people they need to be perfect and they don't know how to be perfect. The last people he's talking to is the whole nation of Israel referring to how they treat 
the people outside of the nation of Israel, telling them you need to be perfect to the nations that are imperfect to you. And then they're really, really mad. This is how Jesus sets up the foundation for what he's gonna do for the next three years. And in this message of being perfect, excelling, going beyond what you thought you could do, I want you to change your definition of perfect this morning to Christ-like. And everybody said? And when you change your definition of perfect equals Christ-like, rather than perfect being a bunch of do's and don'ts, perfection now becomes attainable. Why? Because you are simply doing one thing. You're following Jesus Christ. So as we break this down a little bit, and we're jumped right into the middle of the Sermon on the Mount, and we begin to talk about Excel, and as we begin to talk about Excel, just like we had to change our mindset on the definition of perfect and what perfect was, perfect is not a bunch of do's and don'ts, perfect is a being Christ-like, and as we change that, our simple response to that is this, There's another mindset we got to change because the Bible says this, as you thinketh in your heart, so are you. So the definition of you sitting here saying, I'm imperfect, well, you got to change that definition. The Bible says this, when they sent 12 spies into the promised land to spy out the land, 10 of them came back and said this. He didn't say how amazing they were. He said, we are grasshoppers in our own eyes. They talked about all these amazing things that they saw. And then they talked about all the big people that they saw over there. And they saw that and said, oh, we can't do this. God, we can't go take that land. You don't know how big they are. God, you don't understand. We're like grasshoppers in our own eyes is what he said. And the definition we've got to change, if we're going to go and do beyond what we ever thought we were going to go beyond and do as a church, as the body of Christ is this. You can no longer think of yourself as a small church in a small town, but you must begin to think of yourself as a mighty force in the kingdom of God. I'm going to clarify small. You must no longer think of yourself as an insignificant part of the church in an insignificant town, but we are a mighty force for the kingdom of God. Now I'm going to say that one more time because some of y'all are sitting here thinking, but pastor, we just live in Sulphur Springs. Who cares where we live? Some of y'all are thinking, well, pastor, we're outside the city limits and we're, our church is in the middle of nowhere. Who cares where it is? You notice any time God wanted to do a major movement, he brought people out to the middle of nowhere. He brought John the Baptist out to the desert to start baptizing a whole bunch of folks. He brought Ezekiel out to the middle of the Valley of Dry Bones to make a vast army stand up on their feet. God brought us outside of the city limits of town, and I believe so God can do something amazing, and we are no longer an insignificant church in an insignificant town. We are a mighty force for the kingdom of God right here in Sulphur Springs, Texas, doing an amazing work. And everybody said, one more time. Change your definition this morning. To excel, y'all, we gotta change it. You must walk out of this building with a different mindset about you if you're ever gonna excel. You must walk out of this building knowing and understanding you are a mighty force for the kingdom of God. Knowing and understanding that you have strength for the moment, power for the hour, and anointing for the day. And when you walk out of this door, God's gotta use you mightily. To be the lampstand of this region, you are not insignificant and you are not small. You are perfect. Perfectly fitted, perfectly called, perfectly equipped for the task at hand. As we continue to go through this process of excelling and getting to where God has called us to be, I got to have you remembering everything I've already talked about because now I'm about to start the message. (laughs) And some of y'all are laughing. I'm being serious. (laughs) And everybody said, come on now. In this process, I cannot have you thinking you're insignificant. And understand this, when I say I, I'm gonna get real personal for a minute, it's not I saying it. Christ's heart breaks when you leave here with the mindset of you being insignificant and you can't do anything for the kingdom. His heart literally breaks 
I mean, it breaks to the point where he said, I died for the anointing of the day. I died for you to have strength in this moment. I died for you to have power in this hour. I died for you to be significant, not insignificant. And the Bible says the very same power that raised Jesus from the grave lives in you. You're not insignificant. You are a powerful force for the kingdom of God. And I want to encourage you with this as, as I get to the first point. When you leave here today, you're going to have within 10 minutes, okay, 10 minutes, two choices to make. The first one is to use the anointing because God's going to bring you across somebody's path, okay? You're going to have that choice, and you're also going to have the choice of this. I either will use it or I won't use it based on how significant you view yourself in the kingdom. You want to know why a lot of people aren't doing active things for the kingdom? Is they view themselves as unimportant and insignificant. And that could be further from the truth. Couldn't be further from the truth. And so this morning, I'm going to give you some illustrations straight out of the Bible. Not made up here, not in present day terms. Straight out of the Bible so you can go back and reference them. Not so you can say, oh, pastor preached in a message one time. I don't really remember what day it was on. But you can go back to the scriptures and find where these people who the world could have viewed as insignificant were not insignificant. And they went beyond whatever their abilities were because they tapped in to the anointing of the day. Now, the first one I want to bring up is this. How do you respond when the situation arises with 5,000 people and five loaves and two fish? How do you respond? What is your action? What is your reaction? How do we respond as the body of Christ? We've often heard this said, it is not about what you don't have, but it's about what you do have. I need to tweak that a little bit. It's not about what you don't have, it's about responding with what you do have. Because everybody says, well, I don't have it, or you realize I do have something, and it doesn't matter if you keep it in your pocket. Now, come on. It's how you respond with what you do have. The boy who had five loaves and two fish, it wasn't what he didn't have, and it wasn't what he did have. It's how he responded with what he did have. See, a lot of people struggle with tithing because you think, well, I don't have it and it's not enough and I can't do it. It's not about what you don't have. It's not about what you do have. It's how you respond with what you do have. Because if you'll start responding with what you do have, you can get a bucket of water thrown on you. Okay, or the floodgates of heaven poured out on you. Either way, you want to go about it. It's not about what you don't have and it's not even about what you do have. It's about responding with what you do have. How does this relate to the Sermon on the Mount? Everything that Jesus said. Remember in the part of love differently. And we talked about going the second mile. Here's where that phrase came from. Because they were under Roman rule, all the Israelites, they were required, if a Roman soldier came, um, who I got? Uh, can I borrow you just for a second? Yeah, come on up here. Everybody give Tristan a hand clap this morning. what happened if I was a Roman soldier and this was a Jewish person I could go up to him with all my stuff and say I need you to carry this and they were required to carry it one mile they were mandated by law to carry it one mile so he would have to carry my stuff one mile while I got to chill and not carry anything but here's what Jesus said hey if they ask you to carry it one mile do two what are you kidding me 
Jesus, are, did you understand what they did to me? Jesus, you, you really don't understand. He, this man lost it. <laughs> do you understand what all these people on the mountain looking at Jesus thinking? This man has lost it. He's telling me to carry a Roman soldier's stuff, not just one mile, but two miles. Here's why. Nobody notices the first mile. It's what you're required to do. But can you imagine if we got to the end of the road and we got done with the one mile and you had the ability to set all this stuff down and he looked at me, the Roman soldier, and says, bro, I got your back, let's go another mile. That soldier would have stopped and stood still and he would have started walking. And you would have probably got about 20 steps around and said, are you coming? I got another mile to go. This is what Jesus was saying. If somebody requires you to carry it one mile, carry it two Go beyond what you ever thought you could do. Go beyond whatever you've been asked to do. Go beyond, go farther, even to the point of doing it not for somebody who loves you, but for somebody who's ready to kill you. Oh, Lord Jesus, if we're gonna excel this year, we gotta change some things. We gotta change some things. I gotta change some things. Because there are times in my life when I got the one mile, two mile scenario, and you know, man, I'm doing my duty, God, I'm doing it, and I did it to completion, and God says, do a little bit more. And I'm like, no! And then finally I say, and you know what if I would have said, first off, the wouldn't have been near as hard. The one mile, two mile scenario. See, a lot of people sit here and think, pastor, I don't have five loaves and two fish. Neither did the guy who went one mile, but he had two feet. See, it's not about what you don't have, and it's not even about what you do have. It is about responding and being Christ-like when you're asked. And not even when you're asked, because you know what? I said, nobody notices the first mile because it's mandated by law. And honestly, nobody's going to notice the second mile either, except him. Nobody's going to notice the first one, and probably nobody's going to notice the second one, because he's not going to be skipping down the road saying, I'm on my second mile. And here's the thing. When you're on the second mile, when you've extended your heart to the farthest part of grace and forgiving somebody who has done you purposely wrong, and you choose to forgive again, you're on the second mile. You're opening up the door for grace, for blessing, for the favor of God in your life. You're opening up the door to pass the test, to go to the place where you excel in your Christian walk. I've never met somebody who said, I just wanna be a normal Christian until we get to be an adult. (laughs) But do you remember as a kid and you had to pick out your favorite Bible character and you said, if I could be anybody in the Bible besides Jesus, because everybody wants to be Jesus, if I could be anybody in the Bible, I would be him. And it gave you something to excel to. Where have we lost the heart to excel and to go the second mile and to do stuff and love differently than we've ever loved before. Why have we lost the heart? If we're gonna excel as we excel because we've been given strength for the moment, power for the hour and anointing for the day. As we excel, God's gonna walk you into perfection. He's gonna make you perfect because in that second mile, that's you and God's mile. The first mile was the soldier's mile. You had to do that because you're required to. The second mile is your mile. You're choosing to do it. That puts you in the driver's seat about that mile. That puts you in the driver's seat about that situation. It's kind of like when you fast. Puts you in the driver's seat. You say, God, I'm gonna set out on this fast. You begin to get in the driver's seat, not taking God's place. Don't go there, okay? You're not taking his place, but it puts you in a place where you are in covenant with God because you're doing what Christ flat out said do. You're doing what he asked you to do. Excel, perfect, Christ-like, going beyond. The next one, here's it. How do you respond in the storm? A lot of people get the storms in the Bible messed up because you have one storm that's at the beginning of Matthew, one storm that's in the middle of Matthew. You have one storm where Jesus is sleeping in the boat with you, and you have the other storm where Jesus is walking on the water to you. Either way, you're in a storm, okay? The storm I'm talking about is the one in Matthew, chapter number eight, the beginning part of it, not the one where Jesus is walking on the water. This storm, Jesus was in the boat taking a nap in the bottom of the boat. I mean, he was chilling. He was laid out. He was tired. He was sleeping. 
And all the disciples up on the deck freaking out. (laughs) Jesus, don't you care about us? How do you respond in the storm? And you know what I'm talking about when I say storm. I'm not talking about, oh, I have a hangnail in my life, okay? I'm talking about in the storm. I'm talking about when you're married, you're not sure if your marriage is gonna make it. I'm talking about when you're not sure how you're gonna get your kids through school. I'm talking about when you're not sure literally how to pay the bills. I'm talking about when you're maxed out on every level, when you're stressed out to the point where you can't do anything else, where all you have left in the storm is Jesus in the boat with you. How do you respond in the storm? Because here's the thing about Christians. When everything is going good, it's easy to be a Christian. Ain't that right, Mr. Boggs? When everything is going good, Terry, it's easy for me to say, oh, God is good all the time and all the time. God is, I don't ever hear anybody saying that in the midst of a trial. It's Jesus, where are you? Get up out of the bottom of the boat. We're gonna die. But how you respond in the midst of the storm is what everybody looks at. It's what everybody looks at. When the storm is going on, Miss Lisa, it's what everybody watches. And then we make our good Christian excuses like, well, nobody's perfect. Oh, what Jesus just say? Be perfect as your heavenly father's perfect. Wasn't a suggestion. He's telling you how to act when the storm comes. And last year, me and my wife went through some storms. And y'all, there ain't no storm like a ministry storm. <laughs> I mean, I'm just telling you, I don't like ministry storms. In the midst of that ministry storm, me and my wife purposed that people will not see a different Joel and Sherry on Sunday morning. I will not get up there and I will not whine about my circumstances to the church and say, oh, poor pitiful me, y'all pray for your preacher. I wasn't gonna do it. Wasn't gonna do it. I was gonna stand in the midst of the storm. I was going to live differently in the midst of the storm. Because I know it doesn't matter where Jesus is, he's on the boat with me. And if Jesus is on the boat with me, even if he's sleeping in the bottom, I know he's going to wake up sometime soon. But when he wakes up, I don't want to have my actions be such that he wakes up and has to rebuke me. But he wakes up and begins to say, well done, because the storm's going to pass. The storm will end. But when Jesus wakes up in the bottom of the boat and comes to the top, how will he address you? See, he addressed the disciples and he rebuked them. And he said, oh, you of little faith. When Jesus wakes up from the bottom of the boat and comes back up to the deck, I want him to find me being perfect, acting just like Christ would act. Now, here's the thing. How did Christ act when he got to the top of the boat after his fit with the disciples. He looked out at the storm and he spoke to it. So if I'm gonna be perfect, I'm gonna have to find out why Jesus had the authority that he had and what words he said to that storm to make it stop. And I'm gonna have to sit under that teaching of the storm and find out how to calm it to be like Christ. That's pushing some of y'all's limits. Some of y'all are thinking, that's not the doctrine I grew up under. Well, the doctrine many of us grew up under isn't created a flourishing church. So I'm ready for a doctrine like the Sermon on the Mount that says, I will live differently. I will go beyond what I'm asked to do. I will stretch my faith farther than I've ever stretched it. I will do amazing things for the kingdom of God because I've been given strength for the moment, power for the hour, and anointing for the day. And in the midst of the storm, and in the midst of the adversity, I want people to see the way Bible Church living differently. When all hell's breaking loose on our nation, let's live different. When the problems don't ever seem to stop coming, the storm will calm. And when it does we'll be standing and Christ can look and say, well done. Lastly, it's this, 
We've loved differently. We've lived differently. I want to ask you this. How do you respond when Christ asks you about himself? Sounds like a loaded question, but there's a time in the Bible when Jesus went up to Peter and said, Peter, these people say this about me. These people say that about me. But who do you say that I am? Now, I need to stop here. I need to make a correction on a definition. The definition of Christian does not mean knower of Christ. The definition of Christian means follower of Christ. Chuck, can I have you come help me? Awesome. Y'all give Chuck a hand clap. I know Chuck. Hadn't followed him anywhere. I know him. I see him at Juan Pablo's. Hey, Chuck. How you doing, Chuck? A lot of people have that relationship with Jesus. Hey, Jesus. How you doing, Jesus? You know him. You hadn't followed him. See, if you're going to be perfect, it takes a lot more than knowing him. A lot of people sit in churches all across America every Sunday morning. I know Christ. I made him Lord and Savior of my life. I know him. Good. That's the first lifting of the foot. That's not even the first step. It's the first lifting of the foot to know him. And when he says, who do you say that I am? You can't really say who he is until you followed him and saw how he responded in the midst of the storm, in the midst of the feeding of the 5,000. Then after you followed him, then you can really say who he is. So Chuck, here's what I need you to do. I just need you to walk that line right there. Here's most Christians walk. All right. Hey, I'm following Chuck. Hey, Daniel, how you doing, man? Good to see you today. How are you guys doing? Hey, I'm still following Chuck. Really? Am I following Chuck? Hey, man, we serve a good God. I love him. He's awesome. Hey, where, where'd Chuck go? Chuck, you can keep walking, man. And we're looking around as Christians and we're doing this thing that we call church. And we're trying to do it without following, without following Jesus. For message sake, if I said, Chuck, walk all the way around the building and go back to your seat. And if I were to say, I'm going to follow Chuck, what would I have to do? Follow Chuck all the way around the building and back to Chuck's seat. I'm going to ask you to walk the line again back this way. And when you get to that corner over there, you can go back to your seat. Now I'm following Chuck. Now I know what Chuck is doing. I know how Chuck's walking. <laughs> Do you see the difference? Do you see why in the church today we struggle so much and we struggle with the term perfection and we struggle with excelling? It's because we say we're following and we say when Jesus says, who do you say that I am? We just say, I know I'm a savior. But if I were to say I was following Chuck and if somebody would say, who do you say that Chuck is? I'll say, Chuck's the dude who was walking and when he got here, he did this with his head. Because I followed him, I saw him. And a lot of us say we're followers of Christ, but in fact, we just know the name. We haven't really even taken the first step. We've just lifted our foot. I'm going to challenge you this next week to not just lift the foot and say, I know who he is. I know the name because I've read it in the Bible. I know the name because I prayed the prayer at VBS or kids camp or youth camp or one of these camps that you went to. But I know him because I followed him. And you'll know that I know him because how Christ would act, that's how I'm going to act. But Pastor Christ never had to drive a car and he doesn't know how these people drive these days and stuff like that. You're right, okay? But I do know if Christ had to drive a car, he wouldn't drive it like Joel does. <laughs> I set y'all up for that, and you're like, amen, I've seen him drive. See, here's the thing. It's simply how you respond. Christ asked Peter, who do you say that I am? And he said, some say this and some say that. Some say even one of the prophets. But he stopped and he said, Peter, who do you say that I am? And he said, you are Christ. You are the son of the living God. And he said it with such conviction that Christ himself looked at it and said, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah. For upon this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. He didn't give him that statement or say that statement to Peter after Peter just said, I know who you are. He said it to Peter after Peter had been following him. And Peter saw the miracles and he heard the sermon on the mount and he still didn't leave Jesus that's what he told Peter he told Peter I'm gonna do something with you because you've been following me not because you said you know my name see everybody in Israel knew his name every 
everybody in church knows his name. We can say we know him. I don't want you to just know him. I want you to follow him. And I'll know that you know him by the way that you follow him. And I don't want people to say, oh, Joel knows him because he's a preacher. He's got to know. No, I want you to know that I know Christ because you see the way I walk and the way my actions dictate because you know I've been following him. And if I were to never preach another word the rest of my life, I pray that there would still be just as much convicting evidence that I'm a follower of Christ without me ever saying a word. I've got to change my game. Because <laughs> if I could never speak another word the rest of my life, and that had to be the living proof that, that I was a follower of Christ, I couldn't tell anybody, that had to be the living proof. I think I need to change things in my life. I think I need to change some things in my life. And I need to simply do this. Yes, Lord. Not reason my way out of circumstances, but say. Yes. Not say, God, that looks too hard, but simply say. In the midst of feeding the 5,000, say. In the midst of ministering to Sulphur Springs in this region. In the midst of the storm. In the midst of the trial. In the midst of following. That needs to be my response. What your response is going to be this morning. I pray that it's simply this. Because if you're going to excel, it's going to take a yes, Lord response. If we're going to walk in perfection, it's going to take a yes, Lord response. The best news, and here's the final statement I'm going to say. And then I'm going to shut up. Christ is not going to ask you to follow him and leave it upon your power to make sure it happens. He's given you a power on the inside of you to simply say, perfect is attainable because all I gotta do is say, yes. 